Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, and I have a question for us as we gather. It's a rather personal question, and it's a question I've had to ask myself this week. Where is your relationship with God at right now? Do you find yourself in a funk where God seems far off and you're bored or jaded with the idea of following him? Or has he been so near that you're convinced it's worth it to follow him as you feel the warm, joyful shining of the sun, Jesus? Perhaps you're here this morning and you're considering Christianity, contemplating what it means to be near God. You see, all of us arrive here with some kind of spiritual baggage. We're all on the dangerous journey, as one author has penned it, navigating a life of faith. So our aim on a Sunday morning is to aid in that journey, to bring clarity, to offer hope and help as it relates to being a faithful follower of Christ. So we come to a passage in Matthew in our series, The Gospel of Fulfillment. And our text will be chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And if you're willing, I'd ask that you grab a copy of the Scriptures and turn there. And the main idea in this account is simply this. The person of Jesus requires a decision. That can be a difficult concept for our 21st century American ears. Because... We live in a world that often doesn't require much of us. If I'm pressed with the decision, I'll simply move on and pivot to something else that gives me better choices. So we have a plethora of streaming options. I'm on Hulu right now. We have a plethora of friends we can engage with, restaurants to enjoy. I go to Walmart and there are a hundred different kinds of chips on the wall and even several local churches to find. If I don't like what's before me, well, I'll just avoid it and I'll move on. We can praise God for the country we live in, the freedoms we enjoy, and the never-ending options that we have, while at the same time recognizing the weaknesses of it. We can be soft. We can squirm when presented with hard choices. We can live in such a way where we don't have to do anything burdensome, and we can avoid difficult decisions. So when we come to the Scriptures... They can often feel harsh when, as a reader, we're pressed to a decision. When we're told of consequences. When the sobriety of our choices reveal eternal implications. So Matthew's gospel has been historically documented for us so that we would know, love, and follow Jesus. And along the way, in this gospel, we see that we're not the only ones required to make a decision. Time and time again, people made in God's image, they encounter Jesus. His person and his ministry, they encounter Jesus. And the road forks. How will they respond to him? How will they live in light of him? 
Well, God has a word for us this morning, so please read with me, starting in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then all of Jerusalem and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Well, this is God's word. And what I'd like us to see first in our text is a need to change. And I give this directly from verses 1 through 6. Our man, John, by the way, is not a Baptist. (laughs) At least not in the way that we think of it. Uh, It'd be better read John the Baptizer. He was so known by his ministry of baptism that it became part of his name. And we sometimes reference people today in the same way. We have Ralph the lawyer, Susan the accountant, and kids, Bob the builder. So John, known by this ministry, was also known of something of an eccentric kind of guy. His service, verse 1, says it was not in the city center, but out in the wilderness. He spoke a hard message of repentance in verse 2. He had clothes made of camel's hair, and he he had an interesting diet in verse 4. His appearance in ministry was looked at as odd by some, I would imagine. The equivalent of this today may be a man preaching in skinny jeans with a man bun while firmly committed to a vegan diet. It's just different. But aside, that's not the point. Aside from the appearance of our preacher... It's the message and the response to that message I want us to focus on in this first point. Now, we're not given much of John's sermon, but in summary, the message is condensed in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Now, I assure you, this message was just as unpopular then as it is now. And if we simply leave those words as they are, with no explanation, it can seem as though it was a hellfire in brimstone kind of sermon. And well-meaning pastors and preachers have taken these words and they have spoken hard, harsh, yet we admit true words about the nature of sin. Now, John is about to say some harsh words to some religious folks in a moment. And John certainly was bold, as we know from other gospel accounts. He spoke plainly and boldly, even to kings, and eventually he'd get his head chopped off. But was John's message as harsh as some like to think? I'm going to argue no. This verse has been leveraged Again, I think from well-meaning pastors and preachers, even just Christians, to be faithful, they argue by speaking true things in a harsh way. Let me emphasize, I'm not saying that John wasn't bold. He was. I'm not saying he shouldn't have called people to repentance. He should. But Matthew's got fulfillments on the brain. Have you heard me say that in these passages? As we've gone through chapters 1 through 3, again and again and again, Matthew says, fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. So verse 3 should color our understanding of John's message in ministry. As Matthew argues that John's work is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse 3. So the follow-up question to that is, What was Isaiah predicting back in Isaiah 40? Well, I'm glad you asked. Isaiah 40 marks a distinct shift. If you've read it, it's a a hard book to read through. But Mark 40, it's, it's a breaking point. Isaiah 1 through 39 and Isaiah 40 through 66 are almost Two separate kinds of messages to the point that some academics argue they're written by different people. Well, that's flatly wrong and incorrect, I believe. But Isaiah's message, like all the prophets, was one of both judgment and hope. And chapter 40 is the groundbreaking of Isaiah speaking about hope. So Isaiah speaks in that chapter about the greatness of God, God renewing his people, God's promise to be near. He says things like, I'm your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you. In Isaiah 42 and 43, he talks about a servant and a savior that would come to restore. So now fast forward hundreds of years and we're back in our scene with Matthew talking about the ministry of John the baptizer. Matthew argues that John's message of repent fulfills the context of Isaiah 40 and following. John's message of repentance wasn't guilt-driven hellfire and brimstone. It was Isaiah's message of restoration, a message of God's promises a message of a Savior that was coming. You see, part of God working to bring about His promises is the agency of faithful men and women communicating truth to our hearts, even 
calling us to repentance and to look to the beauty of Christ's fulfilled promises. John was preaching repentance in the context of preparation for great healing, hope, and forgiveness. So, but we still got to kind of ask, what is repent? What is repentance? It's not really a word we use much in our common language today. In repentance, it has the idea of feeling more than just like, oh, I feel bad, or self-condemnation. Both of those fall short of the biblical definition. So here's how one pastor helps us, and he defines it this way. The Spirit speaks and convicts, and we listen, agree, and forsake our sinful ways and return to the Lord. Repentance is God's act. It is also our act. So simply put, repenting is agreeing with God that we need to change in how we think, speak, and act. It's a volitional decision from turning from wrong and turning to following God's good ways for your life. It's not just turning from bad things. It's turning to Jesus. So how was John's message of repent? How was that received? Well, look again at verses 5 and 6. God used this message of judgment and hope, fulfilling Isaiah's words, to soften hearts, and many were going to him confessing their sins and being baptized. Now, Jesus hasn't come on the scene yet, so the Christian teachings of baptism haven't come. So what kind of baptism is going on here? Well, here's how one commentator explains it. The confession of sin and the willingness to be washed with the baptismal waters both suggest that the crowds were sincere. Many Jews practiced ritual washings for purification at that time, but this baptism may be moving toward the later Christian concept of baptism because it signifies a change of heart and an identification with a new community. So the word baptize, it literally means to be immersed. So simply put, these individuals would be immersed and go under the waters of the Jordan River signifying a death. As I go under the water, I'm dying to my old self. I'm dying to sin. I'm dying to preference. I'm following God's ways and not my own. And as they come out of those waters in the Jordan River, they're rising to a new way of life. I'm going to repent and change and follow God because God's kingdom is at hand. The Savior's coming. These individuals that were flocking from Jerusalem and Judea and all the surrounding area, what were they convinced of? That something had to change. Well, the theologian Taylor Swift puts it this way. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time, everyone agrees. See, what Taylor is saying is what those Jews came to the conviction of. I'm the problem. I need to change. I have sin that I have to wrestle with. 
See, these people in the wilderness, they looked at their lives, they looked at their lack of following God, and they said, change has to happen. I need to turn my life around. I need to choose God's ways. And, and Lakewood, would God not have us do the same this morning? Would he not bring us to Matthew 3 to consider that we too need to be called to repentance? Repentance is not merely a one-time thing. Faithful followers of Christ repent when they first trust in Christ, yes. But they also live a life of continual repenting. A continual turning from self to Christ. We all have areas of our life and heart that are contrary to God's ways. So we too need to die to certain things in our life. We too have been more shaped by this world than we have by Jesus. Restoration, just as it was promised back in Isaiah, comes off the heels of our repentance. So if you will, repentance is the gun that fires off that begins the restoration promise. So would you take a moment, even now, take a moment to consider where you too need personal change. If we have pride and self-righteousness in our posture, we must repent. If we have wandering eyes and hearts, we must repent. If we've grown cold and angry towards others, we must repent. If we have secretly done, said, and thought dishonoring ways, we must repent. If we've been hypocrites, we must repent. If we have been faithful followers of self and the world and not Christ, we must repent. May God enable us to truly agree and turn from sin and turn to him. That's true repentance. And the church should be the ones that model it first and foremost. We should be a repenting people. Well, may he help us to do that. Well, if you thought that was sober, and it is, we see next that we need not just a change, it's quickly followed by a stern warning from John. And we see this directly in verses 7 through 10, right from John's lips. And I'll give John credit. He doesn't pull any punches. He didn't keep it very low-key when he called these people out. So these Pharisees and Sadducees, they were the spiritual elite of their day, the gurus, perhaps. They were the gatekeepers of spirituality. And if anyone spoke or operated or had an expression of faith that was different than theirs, well, they deemed them as unfaithful and unorthodox. Some of us, I think, may struggle with a similar sense of entitlement. Like these Pharisees and Sadducees, we may also, too, fall into the trap of thinking that we have the corner on right theology and practice. But John's interaction with these guys is just a preview of what we will see throughout the Gospel of Matthew and really the New Testament as a whole. John is obviously familiar with their legalistic spirituality. In verse 7, he calls them snakes. 
a family, an offspring of snakes, perhaps an allusion to that first snake in Genesis 3. One writer says this, Snakes are shrewd, deceptive, and dangerous. These men were all three. Some apparently hoped to escape the wrath of God's judgment by coming to John in a false pretense. Which makes sense when you look at John's follow-up in verse 8. He tells them to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. A public show of repentance, even a public display of confession and baptism, it doesn't mean anything if it's not the fruit of God truly shaping, convicting, and changing your heart. John calls them to bear fruit, not because good works save them, but because a heart truly changed by God is one that produces out of the overflow of your heart a love and a following for Jesus and good works. So mechanically, they and you and I can go through the motions of singing and prayer, Bible reading, communion, and even baptism. Those things do not earn you any kind of merits of grace. That's not a biblical teaching. But you can't help it. If you've been changed by God, you will produce fruit in your life. But that wasn't happening with these religious elites. And we come to our warning. In verse 9, John says that God is not impressed with family lineage. I've heard it said before that God has no grandchildren. Relying upon the spiritual upbringing and tradition of someone else will not cut it. John doesn't care if they're related to the great Abraham of the Old Testament or not. God only has children. Men, women, and children who individually see their need for God and they personally follow Him. I think verse 9 is still common in our day today, however. Oh, I'm good. I'm good because I'm spiritual. Or I'm good because my grandma prays for me. I'm good because I grew up in a Christian family. I'm good because I had family that served in ministry. Oh, I'm good because I grew up in a particular faith tradition. No. John the baptizer reminds us that God is after the heart of every individual that would turn to him afresh, personally. But verse 10 produces the formal warning. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those are fine words. This warning is especially especially applicable, not just to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but I think the context inside the local church as well. This is a warning for us not to be spiritual and Christian hypocrites. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out to the wilderness with hearts that had not truly been shaped by repentance and faith. They're just mechanically going through it. And I'll confess, there are times where it's easy for me to show up on a Sunday morning and mechanically go through it. We're not robots. But God does call for our hearts to be softened. You see, their expressions of faith were cold, unrepentant, and lacking any true fruit of the Holy Spirit in their good works. 
these religious elites were so busy inspecting the spiritual fruit of others, they failed to reflect on their own spiritual condition. Can I ask if that's common for you? Is it so easy for you to see the spiritual flaws and shortcomings of others that you fail to see yourself? Well, they relied on tradition and their own self-righteousness. That kind of spiritual life is not life at all. It's fake. It's dead. And John says it'll be chopped down and burned. And I think the warning is the same for us, brothers and sisters. Like Pharisees and Sadducees, do we think we're spiritually okay because we compare ourselves to the world around us? Are we going through the motions of repentance? Do we lack true fruit and evidence of a heart that's been changed by God? Are we relying upon the faith, teaching, and the lived experience of someone else instead of our own journey? Where are you at with God this morning? Well, these piercing questions build and they lead us to our last point. It is really a building up to a call to a decision, John says. This is clear in our final two verses. Like any good prophet of the scriptures or faithful teacher today, John points away from himself and he points his hearers to the person of Jesus Christ. Many men and women in ministry have fallen into the trap of speaking about a need for change, even offering clarity in a stern warning, but ultimately fail to bring the listener to the ultimate person of hope and change, to Jesus. And I think, just observation, I think people who build their ministries on guilt often perhaps unintentionally, build the ministry on themselves. John the baptizer doesn't fall into that mistake. One is coming after him, he says. The one he's preparing the way for. John's calling for repentance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The King Jesus is showing up. John doesn't preach himself. John's replaceable. John's expendable. No one will be saved and know the nearness of God by worshiping John. So in verses 11 and 12, he points to Jesus. And as we've seen in these past weeks, Jesus in name and genealogy is the new king and the better David. He's the better and truer son of Abraham, the faithful son who came out of Egypt and perfectly obeyed God, the one, John says, that will immerse baptize, plunge you beneath and be covered with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the one coming who restores souls, immerses us into the family of God, prunes us, changes us as fire melts the imperfections in a furnace. Which makes me think, let me make a short comment about verse 11. At the end of it there, it says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. There's two ways to understand the fire. I'll just simply share how I understand it. The fire is not judgment, but the fire is the pruning process that he does in the work of every faithful follower of Christ. 
If you have trusted in Jesus, you too have been baptized and immersed into the Spirit of God. God lives in you. And you've also been immersed into a life of refining more and more into the image of God. But we see there is judgment in this passage. Verse 12. This word winnowing, it's not a word we use much. Essentially, John is saying that Jesus is the one who sifts the souls of men, women, and children. He knows the heart. He gathers those who love him and those who don't. He says, suffer the heat and the wrath of unquenchable fire. Communicating, as Matthew said, the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise of hope, those listening to John's word and us as we read them here this morning will we come to a crossroads. We read of the one to come, Jesus, and as we've said, on Jesus the road forks. John says that one road brings hope, restoration, forgiveness, pruning, and the Holy Spirit. But then he says the other road is fire, regret, and God's judgment. A good question for us to ask consistently as we try to read the scriptures is this. Why has God given us these verses to read? Why would Matthew document a time when a crazy, hipster, vegan preacher would talk of repentance and forgiveness? Why would God have John point his hearers and us to Jesus? And why would Jesus be explained as both Savior who gathers, but then judge who burns? See, what we find early in Matthew's historical narrative here of Jesus' life is that this Savior lives, functions, and operates on his terms and not ours. Matthew's job, John's too, was to simply communicate who Jesus was and allow each individual the time and space to see Jesus and make a decision. In fact, that's the aim of the entire gospel account. A king, a son, a fulfillment of the scriptures, a savior has come. He's the God-man who died and rose again to redeem sinful humanity. And as we see in verse 12, he's depicted as Savior and Judge. The Gospels, including Matthew, and the, New, the whole New Testament, makes the argument that our lives require an account. The decisions we make, the Scriptures say, have implications. We're very familiar and very comfortable with concepts of good and evil and justice. You should be. We are. We're comfortable with those things until it lands on us. The person and the identity of Jesus that we see here quickly turns into a controversial and sticky conversation. If Jesus brings both blessing and judgment... If our response to Jesus incurs one or the other, then we're left to a decision. Whether we appreciate the language of judgment or not, 
If John's description of Jesus is true, and I think it is, if he really is the God-man, if he really did come to save and rescue, then the person of Jesus requires a decision. It was the decision that John pressed all of those in Jerusalem and Judea in the wilderness that day, and it's the same decision that you and I must consider in a fresh way this morning. Will I humbly accept the identity of Jesus and his work on my behalf? The God-man who came to live and die on behalf of humanity. Will I cling to his righteousness and know the blessing of forgiveness? God in me and the pruning fires of him changing me from the inside out. Is that my decision? Or will I reject him? Will I stand in my own performance, in my own righteousness, when God comes and judges me, and I've failed to uphold the standard? Will I continue with the illusion that I often have, that my standard is good and right? Will I choose my own way because I think I know better or that I might miss out on something in life if I don't? You see, these are sober and heavy questions. And the scriptures argue that your daily answering of this question, your daily answering of this question, and the decision you make on the person of Jesus, it has implications not just for your day tomorrow on a Monday, but the ripple effect goes into eternity. This is the question. What will I do with the person of Jesus? If you are here and you're a faithful follower of Christ, then you've, like me, made some poor decisions this week. See, it's not just a one-time decision, is it? But in the moment, I have to wrestle with What will I do with the person of Jesus? Will I follow God's way in the moment, or will I do what I want to do, regardless of what God thinks? And can I just encourage you, if you have made poor decisions this week, this past year, if you're in a season of bad decisions, a lifetime of bad decisions, if you have come to the person of Jesus and said, nah, I'm good. Whether it's for salvation or your daily fight against sin and pursuing of God, can I just encourage you with this? No matter how many wrong decisions you've made, no matter how much regret you may feel for poor choices and the implications and the ramifications of those poor choices, the fracturing in relationships, That was a poor relational decision, perhaps. Maybe you used your time and your money in a dishonoring way. Maybe when it comes to the person of Christ, even as a follower of him, you've said, I'm going to turn. I'm going to choose my own way. If that is you this morning, I want you to know that there is great grace in the gospel of Christ for you. The beauty about a new day, even if it's 20 below when I wake up, the beauty of a new day is it's a new day 
to come to the question and make a decision. And in a fresh way, he offers us the grace to pursue him, as the kids would say, on the daily. I wake up every day with a fresh start and I say, I lay behind what has happened. I see a need for change. I repent. I turn from it. And I ask God, would you graciously help me choose you? And he accepts us every time. So if you feel guilt because your repentance has been lacking, good, turn to him. He would gladly receive you this morning. And if you're here considering Christianity and you've never made that first-time commitment, that repentance, that turning away from self, can I just tell you that there is great joy in forgiveness. Many of us walk around, and we are in a room full of people who walk around with heavy burdens and regrets and shame, and Jesus would take it all. He would say, come to me. Do you thirst? Do you fear? Do you struggle? Do you regret? Come to me. Would you pray that God would help us to do that this week? Father, that is a big prayer. That we would see a need to change. All of us. And may we take heed to this stern warning that relying upon tradition or past performance, our own spirituality, well, Lord, that produces nothing but death. So would you help us to come to the person of Jesus and come to the decision that we choose life, freedom, joy, God, please forgive us in all the ways in which we've sought those things outside of you. Many of us have spent our lives seeking freedom, forgiveness, and joy, and relief in everything but you. Lord, you bring it. So help us to not forget. So tomorrow on a Monday morning, when we're in the midst of our life that you've given us, help us to daily come to the decision of repenting and believing that you are a good good Father, and that you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.